Well, good morning, church. Good morning. That was resounding. I like that. Uh, we are glad that you're here to join us this morning. Uh, if you're new or recently been attending uh, CBC, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great privilege of uh, helping us walk through John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, as we wrap up the third chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you will open up your Bibles and turn to uh, that text, we will read it here momentarily. As we look at this interaction uh, between John the Baptist, or the baptizer, his disciples, and some commentary from John the Apostle on this event. Let's read this together. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease." He who comes from above is above all. He who is of this earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are God's words. Let's pray. Father, we look at this interaction between John the Baptist and his disciples, and we're astounded at the humility of John. And we pray this morning that as we look uh, at these verses, that the Spirit would be working in our lives and our hearts to convict us of pride or of arrogance, of competing with you for glory. Father, we want to see you as the one who is greater than all. We want to have the eyes of the Baptist who readily gives all that he has and relinquishes his role, not with grumbling, but with great rejoicing, with a joy that, as the text tells us, is complete. And so we thank you for that this morning, and we pray that you would work in our heart to do the same, that our eyes and our ears and our mind and our hearts would be open to receive your word and, if necessary, your correction, and that we would be able to leave this morning with a greater love and dependence on you. Father, it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we come before you and approach you uh, through this time as your gathered people this morning. Amen. And so these verses are broken up into two sections. You have the first half of this section, verses 22 to 30, which are a type of narrative. 
It's this man, John the Baptist. We have some background information that's given about what's happening and then his interaction with his disciples. And then the second half of this verse, 31 through 36, are John the Apostle's commentary uh, on what is happening. And so there's two different Johns, I think, in discussion here. John the Apostle, who's writing all of this uh, gospel. First part is this story with John the Baptist and his disciples. The second part is the apostles' commentary on it. And these verses are centered around two main points, the humility of John and the superiority of Christ. And so this morning, we will ask two questions that follow this structure and seek to answer them as we look at God's word. Question number one, how is John the Baptist able to have such great humility? Question number two, why is Christ so superior to John the Baptist? Question one, How is John the Baptist able to have such great humility? Number two, why is Christ so superior to John the Baptist? And so the first question there, how can John have such great great humility? I think these verses show us that John is able to have great humility because John has proper perspective. He understands what's taking place. These verses, as they unfold, bring us to a point of frustration for his disciples. They had followed him in the desert, the man uh, that they loved, that had a tremendous impact and ministry on their lives, who had shaped them and taught them God's word, uh, seems to have been cast away by the people. They are frustrated that seemingly overnight their teacher and by extension even themselves have become insignificant. They have no real ministry anymore for everyone is flocking to that man, Jesus. And so they come to their great teacher with that question. They're all going to him. Why? In their perspective, Jesus has hurt their ministry. They knew who he was. They had seen him come in chapter 1, and certainly they attest to that here in chapter 3. In verse 26, they say, He who was with you across the Jordan. It's an allusion to chapter 1, where in verse 29, John says this, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said after me comes a man who rakes before me because he was before me. But in the midst of this discussion, seems almost idleness. We do know they're doing some type of baptizing, but they're talking to this Jew about purification. And by extension, they're no longer really doing the active baptisms that they see the disciples of Jesus doing just across the way. And so for whatever reason, in this discussion of purification uh, with this Jew, which we're not really told what the nature of this question or discussion is, but I believe it's probably something to do with how does somebody become clean or right before God, uh, become pure in the sight of God, as they're having this discussion regarding probably baptism with the baptizer and his disciples. They turn and they say, look, rabbi or teacher, that man is baptizing. It's astounding to me the way they refer to Jesus here. It's not like, hey, that guy that you told us about, Jesus, maybe even like your little cousin, right? There's some things that they could do. It's just like that man. We're not even going to identify him. Look what he's done. Everybody is going to him. 
They know who he is, but they refer to, uh, they, they don't even acknowledge him or recognize him by, by name. Their devotion to John the Baptist, it appears, has become a hindrance for them to follow the man that John was sent to proclaim. And so these disciples of John are at a crossroad, and he must teach them how to have proper perspective. He must help to show them why he's not bothered that his ministry seems to have ended, and in fact, instead, he rejoices. And he does this in three ways. First, he cites a basic truth. Verse 27, a person can receive only what he is given from heaven. Jesus repeats a form of this in uh, chapter 19, verse 11, when he's before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate's like, don't you know I have the authority to save you? And Jesus kind of scoffs at him and says, the only authority you have came from me. Like, you're only in this seat because the Father decided that you're in this seat. John the Baptist recognized this. And he says, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. He realizes he has no right to be frustrated that something he had is gone. And for John the Baptist, this is no insignificant thing. We might get frustrated that we don't make the kind of income that we have, or we have to downsize our house, or uh, something along material lines in our life. John has none of this. This is a man who lived in the desert and ate bugs. Like, for him to say, what little I have is now gone, is literally meaning I have almost nothing left. My purpose has been served on this earth. And yet John says, all things belong to the one in heaven, even my influence and my ministry. And so I will rejoice that I had the influence that I have and that God was honored through my service. He makes no claim to ownership of his own ministry that his disciples see they have lost. Second, John reminds his disciples what he has told them, mainly that I am not the Christ, I was the forerunner. I came before him. My job was to point you towards these people. But then we're left with the question, uh, why is John reminding them in verse 28 when he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ. Have perhaps some of his followers claimed that John is the Christ? Has their devotion and investment into their teacher become so all-consuming that they've promoted him to a place that John would never accept for himself? Are they, unfor- un- are they therefore unwilling to let John become less so that Jesus might be glorified? We're never given an answer to these questions about the motives and attitudes of the disciples, how they're regarding their teacher, John the Baptist. But nevertheless, John wants to make sure that they understand who he is and who he is not. He will not allow the attention that is due to Christ fall on him. And so he will point his disciples to Christ one more time. We might ask, how can they have this attitude? John had been telling them his entire ministry is preparing these people to receive the Christ, the one that is coming. They had a great love of God, which probably drew them out to the desert to be uh, devoted into following in their teacher's footsteps in such a hard lifestyle. And yet even in the midst of all this, they seem to have resentment for Christ. And so what will John do? Simply say, I'm not him. You've heard me tell you this. Let me confirm it one more time. Many Christians fall into similar traps today like these disciples of the Baptist. 
We take well-intentioned attitudes of reverence for great teachers and leaders, whether ancient men in history or modern men, and because we love them and their ministries have such a profound impact on our lives, we begin to have a cult-like devotion to them. We have this personality that captivates us. And so we might elevate people that I respect that have had a great impact on my life, their ministries, whether old men like Charles Spurgeon or people that are alive today like John MacArthur, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Doug Wilson, men who I think speak great truth into my life, do a great job opening God's text, but I also see many people fall into almost a worship of these men's message from time to time. And John 3 is warning us, don't let ministers become who you worship. Christ must always be the center of our worship. The job of great teachers in the church is to point people towards Christ. None of those men I mentioned even once claimed to try to have that kind of attention, but because of the way that we are wired, we want to give man attention that is due God. We have to fight against that. Gary Burge writes in his commentary a summation of these verses uh, like this. John uh, 3, 22-36 is all about the fragmentation that results in the kingdom of God when Jesus is made to compete with human vessels in this world. No one will admit that they're competing with Jesus. No one will say that they're impeding the kingdom's growth. Words like envy, jealousy, and rivalry are never admitted. But just as the Baptist followers were interested in making him into, into an institution, so too the Christian church can become a human institution built on the foundations of human enterprise and personality. We need to be a people who see our devotion first and foremost to Christ not to the personality-driven institutions that we see around us in this world. God's given us pastors and teachers. We should listen to them. They're for our good and our encouragement today and throughout history. They should be studied and listened to, but they should not be worshipped. Our devotion belongs to Christ. Third and finally, though, John is going to help his disciples have proper perspective by giving them an analogy. And this analogy uh, is a kind of ironic one. And it's almost shocking when we read it. He says, why should the friend of the bridegroom take the bride? My paraphrase. Right? It's, if you're a best man at your friend's wedding, and you start hitting on your best friend's fiance right before their wedding, you're trying to take her for yourself. You're mad. Like, why should, she should be marrying me, not that guy. Like, she should look at me, not that guy. It's an astounding thing that we think, how could this even happen? Right? If that happens to us and we're the groom, we're probably punching our friend in the face uh, and uninviting him from the wedding. Uh, and rightfully so, I would say. Uh, John gives this analogy and says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. The bride is not mine to take. What's he talking about here? Well, in this specific instance, he's talking about all of these present-day disciples who are now flocking to Jesus. They don't belong to him. They're not his bride. He was just a friend who encouraged them, maybe even helped introduce them to one another. But he is not going to take this bride. In doing this, he's echoing things of the Old Testament when God sees Israel as his bride. And as we move forward in the New Testament, we see the church referred to as the bride of Christ. John is saying, these people, the followers of God, do not belong to me. 
Why should I be frustrated that they're not following me anymore? It's a good thing, and it causes him to rejoice. D.A. Carson helpfully states it this way. For John the Baptist to, to have wished he were someone else, called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent, would simply be covetousness by another name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the excellent ministry God had given him. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but the worst form of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. This is what's at stake with John's disciples. They want to put John where God belongs, and John will not have it. He says, not only is my ministry given to me by God to use or take away, to feel that I deserve anything more is to try to take from God what belongs to him. Instead of jealousy at the ministry of Jesus as he is calling his people to himself, John here then instead is filled with the great joy that he says, my rejoicing is what? Uh, complete. Why? Because his ministry has been accomplished. He sees the fruit of his ministry and it's great and it's successful because the people aren't flocking to him. They're flocking to the one he wanted to point to. And he finishes with perhaps uh, some of his greatest words uh, that, and a great reminder for all of us. He must be greater, I must be less. It's a timeless principle for all humanity and certainly Christians to hold on to. This perspective means that all things in our lives and in all things in our lives, Jesus must constantly be advancing to the center and the focus. Whether that's the way that we parent, whether it's the way that we lead at the workplace, or it's the way that we carry ourselves as we go about our day. In all things, Jesus needs to be coming uh, the focus. And practically, this means that one of the ways we do this in our life, and why we, you've been hearing us talk about things like family worship, if you have a family of any capacity, even if you have older grown children, when you gather together, the center of your gathering should be Christ. Like, we want people to love Jesus so much that when their family gets together, it's not based on what the schedule is and what kids need to go to what sports or activities or what jobs are required. It's saying when we get together, we're going to center our lives and even our meetings on God. We want to read God's word together as a family. We want to worship our God together. And so you're going to hear us from the pulpit say all the time, if you have any kind of capacity of leadership in your family, whether old grown children, young children, teenagers, you need to be making Christ the center of your family. That's what John is pointing us to. But too often, we're tempted just a little bit to have that desire of people saying like, that's a great job that you did. We like to hear that. Right? I think every man wants to hear their wife or anybody else in their life say like, I'm really proud of you. That was an excellent job. It puffs us up a little bit. We stand a little straighter. But if we're not careful, we start to live for that semi-high uh, that we get when people give us that praise. Like, oh, I want more praise. I'm going to do things that are going to attract this praise. And we start to think of ourselves in a greater capacity. We become like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. You guys all know that creepy little dude uh, consumed with something that never belonged to him to begin with. 
looking at everything in life and saying, mine, mine, my job, my influence, my family, these things are mine. Look what I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished because I'm so intentional or, or I'm so successful or I've made just the right decisions. Mine, mine, mine. But it's a trait of fallen human nature to not understand that everything belongs to God. This is evidence I have an 18, 19-year-old son somewhere in there. Everything he sees in our house is mine. The carrots that I'm eating that he's going to throw against the wall as soon as he tastes because he hates them, mine. Sister's Barbie that he doesn't want to play with, he wants to throw against the wall, mine. Everything that he sees, mine, mine. Why is this? Because as humans, we have this fallen nature that says, I want to start to take that which belongs to God and call it my own. And until he gets older and understands that even the basic things in life that he might think he earns by doing chores and things around the house uh, truly don't belong to him, they belong to Christ. Until he gets to that point, he'll never really have the perspective and the appreciation and the love of God. That's what we need to be pushing ourselves for and showing the people that are around us. John is reminding us of this proper perspective. Whether uh, possession or prestige, John says all things belong to Christ. To be frustrated that he's taken them away is to be frustrated with God's plan and to tell him that it's not good, which is blasphemy. But then we see this second section start to happen. John is able to have humility because he understands all these things about Christ, but then the apostle gives us some commentary here. And he's saying Jesus is superior in every single way. And so we're forced to answer that question. Question number two that we said this morning, why is Jesus so superior to John the Baptist? Let's look at verse 31. Here the answer lies. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. It's an awkward sentence structure when we read it. We might ask ourselves, like, why did he write this twice? Did he forget he was writing? He's just like, oh man, maybe I forgot to put that in. I need to add it. Uh, No, this is a common uh, structure or technique used in Scripture. You might have heard me or somebody else talk about it. It's called a chiasm. It's like a sandwiching technique. It's going to drive the emphasis somewhere. And so in the beginning of the verse, he says, the one coming uh, from above is above all. And the end of the verse, the one coming from heaven is above all, that's meant to help us focus on the middle part, which seems ironic because we say, well, shouldn't we be focusing on the one coming from above? Well, no, here in the commentary, John the Apostle is saying, why is the one from above so much better? It's because of this middle section of verse 31. He who is from the earth is from the earth. Profound, right? Like, he's from the earth, he's from the earth. Again, why are you repeating these things? because he speaks from the earth. John's ministry was to prepare all of the people for the one who was coming, the one whose sandal strap he was not fit to tie. This is the one that his disciples have seen a growing influence and have been frustrated. It's not a matter of effectiveness or skill. John is saying, this man is fundamentally different than me. He is superior, for I can only speak as one from the earth, but he speaks how, in verse 32, he bears witness, he testifies to what, what he has seen and heard. Jesus is superior because he has a superior testimony. 
This is an echo of uh, verse 11 in chapter 3 in the discussion with Nicodemus when he says, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Jesus, uh, referring to the one coming from heaven, and John here claims what he has seen and heard to this he testifies. Jesus speaks as only he is able to speak, the one who has seen the things of heaven, the one who knows God the best. For I am the only one, Jesus says, that is God in the flesh. John can only speak from an earthly perspective, the Baptist that is. And thus his message is always going to be inferior to Jesus. Like all the prophets of the Old uh, Old Testament, they can only look and share the words that God has given to them. But here in Christ, we have the one that can surpass all of those testimonies. That's why the book of Hebrews opens up uh, so profoundly. Hebrews 1, uh, the first three verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, what the, John the Apostle is noting here in this commentary, it's not that Jesus is more eloquent or has a more effective ministry philosophy than John the Baptist, although it's certainly true and safe to assume that he does because he possesses all knowledge and wisdom. John is saying, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, John the Baptist has a limited testimony. But the testimony of Jesus is not limited to what man can know as one from the earth. Jesus, who is God, speaks not just what he hears, but what he has witnessed as the one from heaven. So why is Jesus superior? What we're pointing here is the fact that Jesus is not just better according to earthly metrics. He is fundamentally different and therefore superior. He is the only one that can possess this type of message and testimony. His message is not an earthly message, it's a heavenly message. And so John says, this is the testimony you should listen to. He's the exact imprint of God. And what we see here is not the method or some earthly thing that we say, well, what is Jesus doing? Why are more people going to him to be baptized? Has he got you know, the right smoke machine over there? They're like, oh man, it's really cool, gotta get baptized over there. Or is it the right lake? Like that's, Jesus is baptizing in like 80 degree water. It's warm, it's nice. He's not baptizing in like the freezing Pacific Ocean. Uh, no, what John is saying is the question is not how to proclaim, but what we proclaim. Too often, mankind, we might look at sharing the message of Christ and say, well, if I just shared it in a little bit more convincing way, then somebody would believe. Then I would have the effectiveness that I want. Or we look at institutions like churches and we say, wow, look at how many people are going there. What an amazing institution. What an amazing church. They got all the right bells and whistles to make people see God and know God. That's not what John is reminding us here. We proclaim a message, and that message is Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. John's not worried about methodologies or effectiveness. He's worried about the one to which he has been pointing his whole life, and he wants his disciples not to be jealous of the impact that this ministry is having, but to perhaps repent of their unwillingness to follow him 
and to see the Savior for who he truly is. The world around us has a Savior complex. We don't have to look far to see secular world providing all kinds of options to help save mankind or give us purpose, whether it's greater government control so that we don't have to worry about this or that, whether it's uh, educating children, whether it's uh, how to follow the right career path. There's so many different methodologies, climate control, change, warming, cooling, whatever it's at these days. Uh, All of these things are the savior complex that the world has. We want to put ourselves where God is. And the secular world wants to see themselves as in control, that we're the ones that have the right methods. We're the ones that have the right uh, testimonies. If we would just do this as a nation or as a global people, then the world would be better. But John here is pointing us to the testimony of heaven. He wants us to see God in the flesh. He's superior in every way. And lest anyone reading this gospel is confused about the outlook, if this message is received or rejected, John writes this, verses 33 through 36. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is this talking about? If you receive the testimony of this Jesus, whom the disciples of John the Baptist are complaining about, you will have life, he says. You testify to something, that God is true. But then conversely, to reject the testimony of Jesus is not to reject Jesus, but John is saying is to reject God, to say God is false, God is a lie. By rejecting the testimony of Jesus, these disciples, John the apostle is trying to show us, have rejected God as false. To say that John the Baptist should have what belongs to Jesus is a form of, as blasphemy. One commentator, D.A. Carson, finishes his section this way. If faith in the Son is the only way to inherit eternal life and is commanded by God himself, then failure to trust him is as much disobedience as unbelief. The opposite to seeing life is seeing death. Judgment had already been threatened, verses 19 to 20 last week, but now it's alarmingly explicit. God's wrath is not some impersonal principle of retribution, but the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly fallen into rebellion, and finds few who want anything to do with him. Such people are condemned already. And it's the sadness that the apostle points us to. Verse 32 again, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, but the second part of that No one receives his testimony. There is a rejection of the Savior because these people have elevated the wrong man to his place. And in summation, we want to have practical examples of humility or understanding God, seeing him as superior. I think we understand what humility means for John the Baptist. For John the Baptist, humility is not thinking of himself less, it's thinking more of God. 
It's not to say that he's like uh, Wayne and Garth before Alice Cooper. You know, we are not worthy. We're scum. Fill in the rest. Uh, right? They're saying, listen, John the Baptist is saying, I rejoice that I was counted worthy to have this ministry. But I think even more of God than I think of my ministry. I rejoice in what he might do. And for us, we can say the same thing. Real humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking more of God. And of saying, God, look at what you have done. We can't look at God and his salvation for us as wretched sinners and think we're any better than anyone in the world. We have not understand who God really is. We haven't thought enough of God to see what he has truly done to save us. Real humility comes from understanding and thinking more of God. And so a few questions to leave us with this morning. One, do you see yourself as dependent on God? In your life, do you have that attitude of John the Baptist? All things come from heaven and they will go back to heaven. I'm just simply a caretaker. John the Baptist knows he's fully dependent on God. If you don't think you have enough dependence on God or you see yourself trusting in your own ways, uh, pray and ask God to help you trust him more and be willing to do whatever it is that he's going to bring to help you do that. It's not always an easy road to take that next step in faithfulness and trust, uh, but it helps us to understand and love God and be more dependent on God when we do so. Secondly, in your house or at your job, are you competing with God for the glory? In your house or, or at your job, is it all about you? Or is your work as a parent, as a coworker, as a boss, pointing people towards Christ? Do they see you as doing what you do because of your love for Jesus? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. And finally, do you have a deflated or inflated view of self-worth? Simply put, the only reason we are valuable is because God has said we are valuable. Somebody has said this, and so it's true. We have the same principle all the time in our lives, right? Bitcoin is only valuable because some weird guy on the internet said it's valuable and everybody believed him. And now it's worth like $60,000 for no reason. I have no idea. Uh, but it's worth a ton of money because somebody has said so. The only reason we as humans have any value at all is because the creator said we do. And we trust in that. And that shouldn't cause us to have a deflated or inflated self-worth, but the proper self-worth. Saying we're valuable because God has said we're valuable. And he has sent his son to save us. We should have the proper attitude of God when we understand that true. And so do you have that? Or do you have a deflated or inflated view of your self-worth? And we ask these questions, and hopefully we get to the point where, like John the Baptist, we're happy with whatever life brings us. And we just simply say, I become less, God becomes more. Whatever that less looks like for John, I mean, he has no house, no family. He's got, you know, a tunic and some honey and some bugs that he's lived off of. That's all he's got left. He has no ministry. And he's happy with his lot in life. I pray that we can get to that same attitude, that we say, whatever God gives me, 
whatever type of influence he gives me, whatever job he gives me, wherever he asks me to go, that I won't be frustrated or scoff or want more, but simply say, to God be the glory, I will be faithful with what he has given me. That's my prayer for all of you to respond and see how superior Jesus is and to live your life knowing that in light of that truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do have a superior one in Jesus Christ who has a testimony not according to the words of man or the methods of man, but the testimony that comes from heaven is the only one who can speak of not just what he's heard, but what he has seen. Father, we thank you that you chose to come down, that the incarnation is true, that Jesus Christ, God, came down in the flesh, and that his testimony certifies that you are true, and that you are good, and that we are valuable. And so, we thank you for this. And we confess that sometimes we're prideful. Sometimes we want to put ourselves at the, the center. We want to center our lives around things that bring us joy and satisfaction rather than your word. Father, we repent of that. And we ask that you would help us to establish an attitude in our life that centers everything that we do, whether in work or deed, or even our speech, that all of it comes and centers on you, and brings you glory to those that are around us and that are watching. Father, to Christ be the glory. May we just be simple vessels like John the Baptist to help point people to the one who is superior. Amen.